0: Live from the Heartland and the Crossroads of America.
1: It's Tony Katz today. We want to make sure that we're not losing any potential talent around the world if if they want to um log in anywhere but they want to live here. So that's Governor Eric Holcomb talking about his next level
0: uh, agenda. And it's, it's it's Holcomb being classic Holcomb. And I don't mind the classic part of him. I don't mind a guy who wants to figure out how to build growth and opportunity right here in Indiana. I don't mind that he does this this very unsexy thing about workforce development. How do you get people to come to Indiana for jobs, and how do you get them to stay?
1: That's 100,096 individuals. We've got 152,000 unfilled jobs posted on our state website. How do we match those? It's a good question. It's a legitimate question,
0: and one worthy of asking. Tony Katz, Tony Katz Today, great to be with you. Facebook, Tony Katz Radio. Twitter, Instagram, get her at Tony Katz. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. He is not wrong in any part of this conversation.
1: Getting them attached to those training services that they need and getting folks who are ready and able to work right now, um, sending them information on jobs that are available close to them. A focus on jobs
0: and a focus on growth and a focus on on things like remote skill sets. How do you get people to live here or, or work here? Extremely, extremely important. And he got into some other subjects as he was talking about his next level agenda for 2022, like uh, kindergarten.
1: This is a lifelong um, pathway. This is pre-K to graduating from high school on to adult learning and adult training, skilling up for those jobs that are out there right now. We need to fill them.
0: A lot of people have talked about the the, the pre-K conversation. There is... uh, i would argue some interesting data uh, that shows if you if you start kids earlier they have better opportunities uh, there's also a conversation of uh, now we're adding more schooling more state it 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 has two sides to the coin but one of the most interesting interesting things uh, Governor Holcomb got into was this idea of taxation regarding
1: equipment. We're proposing eliminating the 30% business personal property tax floor uh, on new equipment to encourage those continued uh, investments in the state of Indiana. So I wanted to understand some more about this
0: and really kind of dig into the conversation of is, is what we're seeing top line from this agenda does it actually provide a value all the way through or is this more window dressing than it is good uh, valuable uh, thoughts for the future and what and did i hear it right is Is Governor Holcomb saying we shouldn't cut taxes because local municipalities need the money? So I got together with a Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, uh, because I wanted to get his thoughts. On this plan, and whether or not we're seeing it in, in, in its totality, and what in the world is this thirty percent tax floor that the governor's talking about, uh, Doctor Matt Will, you've been taking a, a look at this. First, let's let's take a, a thirty thousand foot overview mm-hmm. of what it is Governor Holcomb proposed here. Your take? You know,
2: it, Tony, when I first read about it, I was very excited. I remember when we. Um, conversed about this yesterday. You read the headline, it's good. Cut personal property tax, which is a thorn in the side of small businesses in Indiana, and then boost up the IEDC and give them the ability to be more flexible. But then when I dug down, Tony, this is, this is not good. The personal property tax for Hoosiers who don't know this, it's a tax on stuff you own. So if you're a small business on the corner, you're a restaurant, you've got furniture, kitchen equipment, It's a local tax just for owning the stuff. Tony, I like to equate it to the mafia. You know, you open your business, you you don't even have any sales yet, you don't even have any customers, and the government walks in and shakes you down for money, for merely
0: existing and but that's, but, uh, but that conversation, for example, is about this 30%. So law requires businesses to pay, In this uh, is a good write-up from uh, IBJ, uh, Emily Ketterer reporting. Law requires businesses to pay a tax on at least 30% of the purchase price of machinery and equipment every year, even if the equipment is years old and no longer worth 30% of its original cost. What Governor Holcomb is suggesting is bringing that floor down or possibly even eliminating it. So there is no tax on that equipment. That's got to be a good thing.
2: But Tony, no, it's only for new investments. If you read the details, he succumbed to local government, the county, the townships that are his bread and butter, that are the big government of this state, because it only applies to new investments. So all those existing businesses, all those mom and pop shops will still have the same tax rate. Something that's 50 years old, they're still paying taxes on 30 percent of their purchase
0: price. So let's go over that one more time. I want to make sure everybody understands. If you're telling me I buy a a mixer, I'm I'm a bakery, I buy a mixer, it's $1,000. Round number, nice, simple round number. I'm paying 30% or $300 on that every single year I own that mixer, no matter how old it is?
2: No no, you're you're paying you're actually, in Indiana, we have the seventh highest tax rate in the country for personal property taxes, fifteen percent. You're paying a fifteen percent tax on the value of that, and the value can never drop below thirty percent of the original
0: purchase price. so So, do the math for me. If it's a thousand dollars when I buy it, what am I paying on it? Oh, Tony, you're making me get out my calculator. So you're paying the 1000 No problem. We all need thing? to get out our calculators. <laughs> this is it. This is where it gets so strange and so confusing because there's also a conversation about whether or not we're going to see tax cuts in the state. And I'm a believer that this is a perfect time to go about doing that, especially to make Indiana more attractive. There also has to be regulatory uh, uh, issues taken care of, talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. But this is a big one because top line, it does look look like we're talking about a tax cut your argument is not necessarily over the long term
2: in fact it's not even for the short term or long term for existing equipment so you the number you just threw at me the thousand dollar mixer that you bought 30 years ago you're still paying 45 dollars a year just to own it and that's a thousand bucks tony what if you have a million dollars worth of equipment multiply that by a few zeros that's a lot of money and, yes, they're going to say there's a 40000 exemption. That's true for so the smallest of small businesses. But, Tony, $40,000 is nothing. you got a few uh, boilers. you got some uh, kitchen equipment. you got some furniture. Boom, you're going to hit, surpass that $40,000 in improvements really quick. And the new proposal, Tony, only applies to new investments. All the existing businesses, all the existing furniture and equipment and stuff you put in your building is not going to benefit from this. It's window dressing, Tony. It's not a legitimate tax cut for existing businesses.
0: So why, if, if it's that easy to break it down and to understand the issue, what is it that uh, Governor Holcomb, you feel, has has provided business owners? And our business owners in, in Indiana, are they seeing it the way you are? You know what, Tony, once they
2: look at the details, they will see it exactly. I know personally business owners who have gone up against the personal property tax assessor, lost many times. They've, the, the assessor comes in and says things are worth more than they ever actually put into it because they say it's an improvement and the value is more than what the owner says. But I think, Tony, what the governor is really doing here, and this is the good part, so I'll give him credit for this, is he's trying to improve the toolbox for the IEDC. And for people that don't know, the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, created way back with Mitch Daniels and Mickey Mauer has been amazing. Everything we get in this economy that's beneficial to Indiana started with the IEDC and Mitch Daniels. And he's trying to give them a better toolbox to go to new businesses and new investments and say, hey, here's more incentive to invest in Indiana. And for that, he deserves a lot of credit. And the IEDC, I think, is one of the, the gold standard organizations of the state. And thank you to Mickey Mauer and thank you to Mitch Daniels for getting that thing started
0: talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist, University of Indianapolis, uh, discussing uh, Governor Holcomb's legislative goals for Indiana in 2022. A a lot of focus on education, training, and workforce development. As I've discussed before, this is the totally unsexy stuff. It it is hard to get people excited about workforce development, but he's having a conversation about the world of telecommuting and saying, why not live here even if you're going to work somewhere else? This the place that that you should you should be has he done anything in this legislative agenda to make it more attractive to work here for the telecommuter you know I, I think
2: the answer is yes Tony he's trying but and I got to give the governor credit for this this has been the bane of our existence we don't have beaches we don't have mountains and people just don't want to live in Indiana they want to go to those cool sexy places and I give the governor credit for trying again to solve this problem um, I don't know if it's easily fixed. I don't know if this will do the trick, but good for him for trying.
0: Is, is the trying in, in a, uh, an increase in dollars to get people to realize this is a place to live? Is it about uh, giving a, a level of credit or, or tax cut to make it easier to live? Where, where is the trying in your view? Uh, what is the thing that is of value? Well, I I think that
2: allowing it to be easier to telecommute, and I know this will sound contradictory to what you just said, Tony, but the truth is, if you want to live in Florida and work in Indiana, I'm going to be okay with that. Would I prefer you live here? Yes. But I want to provide an incentive for you to live wherever you want, but work in Indiana. And I think that's the better route. We've been trying for years to get people to move to Indiana. Tony, I, I mean, I left Indiana when I graduated college. I came back to be with family. But the reality is, kids that are 22 years old want to go to beaches and mountains, and let's—you can't fight reality. Um, so I think the incentive should be to work here, but live wherever you want.
0: How much—and and I look—I have theories on that, and I'll get to it uh, at another time. How much of this, when we take a look at this budget, or, or take a look at this this agenda, is about? Making sure local governments get their tax revenue because I'm—you've seen Americans take haircuts. They're—they've they, they're dealing with inflation. They, they dealt with lockdowns, but yet somehow we think our local government never has to take a haircut. How much of this agenda from Governor Holcomb is about ensuring local governments get theirs? Oh, Tony, Tony, a hundred percent.
2: Why do you think there's this massive mafia loophole to not give the benefit to existing businesses with existing equipment? Remember, Mitch Daniels left office, and one of the regrets he had, he said, is he could not reform local and township government. He tried, and you've got to remember, Holcomb was in the administration for Daniels, but he's not a Daniels guy. He's a Republican guy. He's a big Republican, big government guy. Daniels was all about shrinking the size of government. He would always say, you know, for for every size increase, and I'm paraphrasing, in the size of government, you lose a little bit of your freedom. Trust me, Holcomb's next budget is not gonna be about shrinking the size of government. It's gonna be about spending all that excess money. And that's my concern. I'm glad that he's one that takes part of it and give us some tax cuts to incentivize businesses to come here. That's good, I'm giving a lot of credit for that. But there's just a lot of uh, spending going on, and that's what we've seen, and, and Republicans are you know, turning into the Democrats when it comes to spending in the state of Indiana.
0: I mean, that's always the case. You know, when we talk about spending, Democrats spend, but Republicans spend slower, right? <laughs> that's always the line we use. Uh, my thanks to Dr. Matt Will, economist, University of Indianapolis. Uh, I think you find him on, on Twitter box, Dr. Matt Will, M-A-T-T-W-I-L-L, mattwill.com. Uh, this if we're going to say well the local municipality needs the money so we're not going to cut taxes uh you you can't get me to be down with that you can't get me to buy into that that's that's a valueless proposition right there and you're gonna say well it's covid they were hit hard we were all hit hard where's the deal for everybody else that's the that's the question. Where, where is the deal for the people who weren't able to open up their business like they wanted to? Where is the deal for the people who weren't able to get the stock to have in, in their business like they wanted to, to have things to sell? Where, where do they get everything that they need? Aren't they entitled to a little bit of relief? It is not solely and exclusively about, well, the city needs this, the municipality needs that. No, 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 no. But I think it was, I think it was uh, a pretty rough and tumble. There, I wonder how the Republican Party will respond to this idea, because when you pull back some of the layers, this is wh- wh- where where is the thing that actually moves and better[s] the lives of Hoosiers? And I don't argue that you may have an ar- a conversation about uh, pre-K. I argue that you your your desire for programs. It cannot be the lead. People making decisions for themselves should be the lead. That's always where I am. And it's also very interesting about that thirty percent. If that thirty percent isn't, uh, you know, uh, uh, getting dropped all down the line, only on the on the new purchase, only on the first year. Ooh, that's 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 dabbling around the edges. That's playing. Well, it's something. It's not everything. It's nowhere near. It's not even something at that stage of the game. We'll see how this plays out. More to get to. I'm Tony counts. So, producer Ari asked me a question. Tony, do you know the moment you realized you were a Republican? And the answer for me is no. No, I, I've been a conservative my whole life. I have always had these kinds of, uh, of of leanings and even when i i, I mean because you know i used to do when i was a kid i, I was uh, the president of my youth group but the youth group was the entire state of new jersey it was thousands of kids and i would do speeches at at, at events we would do and I, I remember once giving a speech about charitable giving and and caring and i i used donald trump as my all-purpose example somebody who wasn't giving enough i remember it i was i was 17 and I remember being done with it and saying, you know, that was that was a pretty good speech, but I was wrong about Trump. I wouldn't actually know what he gave. I didn't do the research to know what he gave. That was it was a cheap line. I knew it then that I was wrong in saying that. But I've always been this guy. So the question producer Ari, is you must have had some kind of epiphany. Did you have a moment you realized that you were a communist in waiting? <laughs> I I did not do that. I I I mentioned the question to you because I was
2: thinking about this the other day. I remember being 12 and John Kerry was running against George W Bush and I don't know if it was an interview or debate and George W Bush was talking about prayer in school and I at that point there's a first memory I have of political thought thinking I don't like that and that like that was my first thought into being like I don't like that candidate like
3: I don't I'm not a fan of that
0: yeah, but the, but you weren't a fan of that idea, by the way. Neither am I. I, I got to admit, I I I do not want prayer in, in public school. I want I want math and I want science and and I want English. If kids want to get together and engage in prayer, I got no issues. If kids can get together and engage in some leftist propaganda, nonsense, pseudo intellectualism, they can get together and pray. It's fine. I mean, it's like the, the the prayer before a football game and people get upset. How dare they? It's a separation of church and state. Stop it, you angry, bitter, hateful bastards. Just cut it out. Let the kids be. Don't be silly. So the, 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 the question, though, is that did you oppose the idea or you now oppose the person?
2: I think I owe, like, again, I was a 12 year old kid. I think right. from that point, I associated that with the party. What, fair or not? Actually, not fair. It's definitely not fair. But I. I feel like that was my first interaction. I was like, I don't like that, and so he was the party at that point.
0: I will tell you what's interesting is that uh, you know I I was a conservative. My my parents were certainly conservatives. They were so opposed to prayer in school that when they tried to institute like even a moment of silence in my school, which happened for like a week, they told us to walk out of the room. Good. So and we did. And the teacher's like, "Where are you going?" I'm like, "You can talk to my parents." That's exactly what they said. I'm stepping out of the room. Oh, they wanted no part of that. Want to no know part of it. But never once did they think it was a bad country. They just thought it was a bad idea. They didn't think people were hateful. They just thought it was a bad idea and they were going to stand against it. And they didn't want their kids to be part of that uh, political uh, insanity. Common common thread there. But okay. That's producer Ari. He was 12 and he
1: became a commie in waiting. I did not. Ugh. I'm Tony Katz. Ha!
0: So the question before us is, are we seeing a blame game? President Biden, he's going to speak with meat producers, small meat producers, actually going to take a billion dollars and give it to the small producers to help them deal with inflation. Because, you know, the answer to dealing with inflation is putting more cash into the system. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. But in the conversation that he had yesterday, he made an address, if you will, to the American people. And in it, he doesn't talk about his own policies. He doesn't talk about inflation. He doesn't talk about uh, the inflation rate of 6.8 percent. The prices going up the, the largest since 1982. No, he goes into a conversation about how big meat companies. You got big oil. You got big tech. You got big pharma. Now you got big meat these companies are overcharging at the stores and they're overcharging families this is president biden in his own words
4: but today we're here to talk about strengthening competition which will bring down cost back in july i signed an executive order to promote competition across the economy in too many industries a handful of giant companies dominate the market And too often, they use their power to squeeze out smaller competitors and stifle new entrepreneurs, making our economy less dynamic, giving themselves free reign to raise prices, reduce options for consumers, or exploit workers. The meat industry is a textbook example on the price side. Four big corporations control more than half of the markets in beef, pork, and poultry. These middlemen that they buy from Farmers and ranchers, and sell the processors. Excuse me, and sell the process. Excuse me, sell the processed product to grocery stores. That's the that's the way it works. Without meaningful competition, farmers and ranchers don't get to choose who they sell to.
0: He went on to say that on the other side, they're charging you, the consumer, uh, too much as well. It's a very interesting level of blame game going on here. It's a very, uh, as I see it, insulting thing uh, to say. It certainly seems like Joe Biden is not doing enough to take a look at his own policies. But is there something to this? As they call them, the, these these big four, Tyson, JBS, man friggin' seaboard. Is there an issue at play? And why wasn't there an issue two years ago? David Harden joins us right now, the manager of Harden Farms uh, in Danville, Indiana has his uh, degree in animal science from Purdue University, a master's degree in business administration, uh, from DePaul, spent time on the Chicago Board of Trade and was president of the Indiana Pork Advocacy Coalition. His farm is responsible for a 600 sow Farrow to finish unit that produces 12,000 pigs each and every year. Sir, you know this world better th- than I do. I am more interested in understanding uh, the, the nature of the conversation than the, the political nature of the conversation. I think I can take care of that part. But let's start with some basics, sir. Does President Biden have a point here that there are basically four uh, producers out there that are squeezing everybody else in the industry?
3: Well, good morning, Tony. Thank thank you for the opportunity to uh, speak with you. Uh, I think, uh, you know, it, as with so many things, it's a very, very complicated issue. Uh, we have seen over the past uh, couple of decades, uh, a large amount of consolidation in, in the meatpacking industry. Uh, it's probably more prevalent in uh, beef and poultry than, than what we have to deal with in, in the pork sector. But it's... It, is something that you know has, as producers that are in the the, the small to medium uh, scale like like ourselves, that it it does bring a certain amount of concern uh, from time to time. Uh, you know, we find it it's difficult to uh, you know when you don't have the scale that that larger producers do. It's sometimes hard to feel like you've got the bargaining or the the leverage uh, to be able to try and negotiate the best, best deal and the best price for your animals.
0: So this is a conversation that would play out in lots of different uh fields in in, in manufacturing and in 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 levels of biotech uh, retailers who are competing against Walmart would have this conversation constantly. But President Biden's specific conversation was was that these four, and I believe uh the four that were were listed were Tyson, JBS, Manfrig and Seaboard are responsible for not only squeezing you, but they're the ones responsible for raising prices to uh the 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 supermarket so therefore uh me and you and, and and everybody listening uh the the end consumer was this not a problem two years ago and this is only a problem
3: now well tony i think you know uh, as you probably talk about a lot in your show uh it depends upon what the uh you know what the issue of the the day is uh you know this is something that we in the the industry have have well not been raising red flags about have at least been saying, hey uh this is probably something that we should, should take a look at uh to make sure that you know there are transparent markets that uh you know so laws of supply and demand work, and you know in the end you know we as a uh, you know the Producers of the the animals get get paid a fair price and we still on the other end of the spectrum have, you know, safe and affordable food that the the consumer is able to go to the store and, and purchase.
0: Talking to David Hardin, Uh, learn more about him with Purdue Agriculture Center for Commercial Agriculture. Spent time on the Chicago Board of Trade and the Grain Futures Division of R.J. O'Brien, a member of the Board of Directors for the Indiana Pork Producers Association since 2005. Let's be a little more specific in what it is President Biden said. Are the small producers being squeezed by larger producers? And has this been the story only over the last year or has this, this been the story for the last 20 years?
3: Uh, Tony, I would say that this has been, uh, you know, different people are going to say it's a problem of different scale. uh, If, most people would say that this has been a, a slowly evolving uh, situation. Again, in the beef beef industry, they would probably say it is much more of a concern uh, than the pork industry would. Um, you know, as far as the, the processors and, and packers, you know, those large four that you mentioned, uh, they're the ones that have the economies of scale to, you know, produce take lots of animals in and and send out lots of meat product on the other other side. You know, we here in Indiana would love to see a more vibrant, uh, small, uh, regional uh, packer and processor uh, network, but the truth of the matter is all those local packers and, and butchers and processors. They just don't have the scale to to process more than maybe about 1% of, uh, you know, all the pigs that are in the state of Indiana. So whether we like it or not, uh, the the larger processors are are here, and we have to, you know, work with them and see if, you know, we can find a situation and solutions that make it equitable for everybody. So as
0: I understand you, sir... Uh, you have consolidation that has taken place within the industry. So you have, uh, larger companies that have purchased uh, smaller companies. I believe that you've got, when, in terms of the beef market, you have four companies that control 85% of the beef market. And then in poultry, in the top four control 54%. Pork, the top four f- control about 70% of the market. You know more about the pork than anything else. You'd agree with that, those basic numbers. I've got that part correct, right? Yes, I would so so is is this a conversation of processing ability like for example when we talk about oil coming to the United States and we need to make gasoline we've got a storm that that hits uh, Louisiana and Texas and then the refineries are offline for a week and we see gas prices rise we have a cyber attack uh, there in the Carolinas and we and the refinery is offline the pipeline's offline we see gas prices rise and then there's a conversation of why don't we have more refineries and that leads to an environmental conversation but the point is is that it's not so much the oil conversation as it is the refinery conversation are we now having are we talking about the fact that we don't have enough processors or the fact that even a small regional or local processor can't put out the product fast enough in a way that is uh, uh, financially beneficial for both the processor and the end user of the supermarket Uh.
3: Tony, I think you you hit the nail on the head uh, with with that on both counts. With you know, specifically in pork, uh, we've seen a situation over the last couple of years where supply has is you know of animals has outstripped uh, the processing uh, capacity, and we really saw that uh, exemplified uh, you know during COVID, uh, you know, last year and the previous year where, you know, you had so many processing plants that had to shut down because uh, there were too many of their, you know, line employees that were sick. And, you know, with, when you're dealing with a, a live product, you can't just Put that animal on a shelf and say okay we'll we'll send it to to market in in two months when uh you know when conditions improve you know that animal's got to continue to be fed it's going to continue to grow and even short-term disruptions in in the uh processing uh in the united states can have very dire and and long-term uh effects so it's definitely i think the in the pork sector, we could see a need for you know improved amount of capacity, and I think you know one of the things that we would, if if we try and find something positive out of what the uh, what the president was proposing, you know, try and look at uh, expanding the amount of uh, producer or pork producer or beef producer owned. Uh, processing capacity, and that would hopefully, uh, give more opportunities for, uh, better pricing, you know, industry wide. And if there's more competition there, then hopefully on the other end of the spectrum, you see more, uh, competition for food service and retailers to be able to buy, buy product from, and hopefully keep prices, you know, at a level that you know consumers can feel good about
0: talking to David Harden manager of Harden Farms outside of Danville Indiana what the president said was was that these companies are his words greedy because I I never use uh, that that word I'm just using his words uh, basically to describe what he said these companies are doing damage these companies are hurting farmers like you and something has to be done about it he is putting the blame there do small ranchers small farmers like yourself do you see any good that came from Joe Biden's statement is there anything there that's going to help you
3: well, I I never like to pit things in an us versus them uh, situation. Uh, but the president you know, did it, right? The president did
0: that to you. We, I'm not doing it to you. Yeah. That's why I'm asking: Does the president's words help you, the small producer, in any way, shape, or form?
3: Well, we, we personally do sell uh, some of our animals to one of those big big four, um, and you know we try and keep the conversation with them uh, you know amicable uh because we're we're trying to you know we're we're free market capitalists we're trying to look out for for ourselves and negotiate the best best deal we can uh you know if if the president thinks that uh you know creating uh, you know that sort of a tense uh dynamic is is beneficial uh well then i'm going to leave that leave that up to him but I think there are more constructive ways that we can we can try and work through this. Before I let you go
0: in, in, in thirty seconds or, or, or less, um what has hurt the small rancher more? Inflation, regulation, or um uh the, the, the big four putting the squeeze on?
3: Uh right now from, from our perspective, I think we're we've definitely been feeling the bite more from it inflation um you know whether it's you know the the supply chain disruptions uh that you know have caused prices to spike uh you know we're we've been having trouble uh sourcing some of the uh, minerals and amino acids that we and vitamins that we use uh for feed for our animals uh and so we've seen in some cases you know prices have gone up 200 percent on those over the last year uh on the crop side of our operation we've seen uh Fertilizer prices uh, double uh, since last year, so it's trying to figure out how to, you know, pencil out a, a profit when, you know, we are price takers. Uh, we're not price makers. That that's definitely been a challenge, and it's something that we're going to have to really focus on uh, over the next year to eighteen months.
0: David Harden, manager of Harden Farms outside of Danville. Indiana member of the board of directors for the Indiana Pork
1: Producers Association. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. We've got more. I'm Tony Katz.
0: I appreciate David Harden uh, taking the time uh, to be with us and I can appreciate the position that you know you you deal with things in a in a, in, a, in a political way everyone takes things every way you don't want to step on toes but I think that the conversation uh, showed something that Biden wants to you know throw some blame but inflation is still the thing that's moving them in terms of price costs. Yes, they have to deal with four, uh, the, the, these four companies that are a major uh, processor and packer uh, of meat. My gosh, everybody deals with that in every industry. And that was part of the conversation. So what is it that Joe Biden's doing here? Meanwhile, out there in Virginia and in Maryland, nobody can get down down the street. That snowstorm that came? I mean, this is perfectly D.C. It just crippled the entire city. I I lived in D.C. These people cannot drive in snow to save their lives. And people have been stuck on roads for a full day, like 19, 20 hours, stuck in their cars. Because there were accidents and there was no way to clear them and the snow was too much and that was it. And people are like, how can this happen in America? What do you mean, how can this happen in America? First, you knew a snowstorm was coming... You got on the roads. Some of you may have had to. Second, you didn't have anybody saying, if we have an accident, we got to clear the roads and keep the cars moving. Third, you may not be able to keep up with all that snow. They're stunned. They're shocked. They don't always get stunned or shocked in Indiana, do they? I wonder why that is. Facebook, Tony Katz Radio. Twitter, Instagram, get her at Tony Katz. Tomorrow,
3: everyone. Take care.